Okay, good morning. Just a few uh, housekeeping announcements before we begin. First of all, um, everyone know Rabbi Moskowitz started a new class on Monday nights and Thursday mornings. Jed Jew, it's a phenomenal series of the laws of traveling and uh, really been amazing feedback from it. So uh, Monday nights, 8 o'clock, Thursday mornings at... 8.30. 8.30, but everyone should definitely attend. Uh, second of all, there's someone sitting Shiva in... Um, Lago. They're not a member of the shul of the community technically, but there's a Mincha Marv. Tonight is the last night. They've been struggling to make a minion. If any men are available for that minion, speak to Larry Palmer and he'll give you the details. Thirdly, very, very excited that uh, this Shabbos we have the privilege of hosting the majority leader of Congress, Eric Cantor. Um, Congressman Cantor is the highest ranking Jew ever in the United States government as the majority leader, as the number two in, in Congress. He's the only Jewish Republican, actually. He's going to be speaking on the U.S.-Israel relationship in light of what's going on in Egypt. That's at the end of the main minion. We also have the uh, tremendous privilege this Shabbos of hosting a scholar in residence, Rabbi Skobak. Rabbi Skobak is the founder of Jews for Judaism, which is an organization out of Toronto fighting missionaries. He's also a wonderful speaker. He'll be speaking many times over the course of Shabbos, so encouraged to come hear him. Sunday morning, just in case people think nothing goes on in Boca Raton Synagogue. Sunday morning, uh, hopefully you are aware, but we have a one-of-a-kind seminar. It's never been done, which is the uh, Families at a Distance, Oceans Apart seminar with uh, Rachel Berman. Rachel wrote a new book, our own Rachel Berman, which is fantastic. Ruth has the details there. There are uh, registrations in the lobby. It's going to be a fantastic seminar. Many professionals who are members of our shul are going to be leading different breakout groups. It's really, really worthwhile. The likelihood is if you live in Boca, you don't live near your children and grandchildren. It's a likelihood. If you do, you're a very uh, small exception. So this is a whole seminar de- dealing with that issue, and uh, everyone is encouraged to attend. And I don't think I left anything out. My parents are coming for Shabbos. But that's just pers- that's just personally exciting. But I think that basically uh, covers it. What Sunday night? The singles event, the Bashert group. Sunday night, the Bashert group, yes. So it's Bashert that I forgot to mention it, but that you reminded me. And uh, Sunday night, 6 o'clock, the Bashert group. Okay, with that we begin, Parshas. Shh, shh, shh. I'm not allowed to announce that. I was, no, I've been told. That's a private affair. Okay, yeah, I told it on. What do you think? I'm not going to tell the whole world that we have Eric Cantor and make them jealous? Of course I turned on the recorder. Don't worry. Okay, so, uh, yeah, he... It's only one place to go from there. Boca Raton Synagogue. Okay. Parshas Tetzava, page 464 in the stone Chumash. Parshas Tetzava follows Parshas Truma, as hopefully you know. Um, and Parshas Tetzava dealt primarily with the Kalim of the Mishkan, dealt with the utensils, the construction of the tabernacle, its dimensions, dealt with the utensils of the tabernacles, their construction, their dimensions. We spoke last week at length on the different roles that they serve and the symbolism of what they are. And again, one can only study Parshas Truma and Tzave if you begin with the understanding that they are a blueprint not only for the technical tabernacle and Beis HaMikdash, they are the blueprint for the Jewish home. They are the blueprint for every shul, which is a Mikdash Ma'at, or a synagogue in miniature. But moreover, not just the shul, Parshas Truma and Tzave, the laws of the utensils and the description of the Kohanim, their garments, their function, really is ultimately the symbolism, the message, the metaphor, is for every Jewish home. I mean, what do we describe? A young couple getting married, what's our hope for them that they build? A bias Ne'aman B'Yisrael. What's a bias? It's kind of a funny, it's a peculiar wish. We should wish that they build a successful marriage. Peace and tranquility. That in a world of uh, divorce and uh, infidelity, that they have peace and that they have uh, loyalty. We don't wish them any of that. 
We wish them a bias ne'eman, a faithful home. What's a bias? A house? We wish them that they buy in the real estate market, that they afford a nice house. What's the wish of bias ne'eman? But a bias means, a bias is modeled after the ultimate bias, the Beis Hashem. And that is that their home should be a miniature Beis HaMikdash, it should be a miniature sanctuary. And we studied last week how the utensils of the Beis HaMikdash really are emulated in our utensils. There was a shulchan in the tabernacle, and there's a shulchan in our home. We have our Shabbos meals around it. And it is mechaper, it atones for our um, material temptations, desires, and so on. And the shulchan in our home, we need to have the same... Uh, same sense of uh, vigilance not to speak Lashon Hara, to share Divrei Torah, and so on and so forth. And one of my favorite, Rabbeinu Bachaya on last week's parsha quotes a tradition going back a thousand years, a little under a thousand years, that uh, in his time already, there was no Beis HaMikdash. Gemara itself, there was no Beis HaMikdash. Gemara itself says, now that we don't have a Beis HaMikdash, why do we study these parshas? We don't have these utensils, they can't atone. And it already tells us, no, that our personal homes, our furniture, Atones in the same way. So the, the Rabbeinu Bachai, I don't remember if I told you this last week, he quotes a tradition that the, in his time, people would be buried in their dining room tables. The dining room table would be disassembled and turned into a coffin, and they would be buried in their dining room table. Why? So that when they got up to Shemayim, they'd be able to turn to Hashem and say, let the wood, let the oak, let this table testify that I sat in it and I studied Torah that I sat at it and I hosted guests, that I sat at it and I wrote checks out to charity, that I sat at this table and I coordinated chesed opportunities. Let it testify, it is my shulchan. That's Rabbeinu Bachaya close to a thousand years ago. As recently as the Rugged Shover gone, the great Rugged Shover who lived uh, less than a hundred years ago, the Rugged Shover was buried in his dining room table. And the Rebbe. The table, the Rebbe also? He yeah? Was table. I didn't know. Table, I his desk, his desk where yeah. he... His uh, table where he died in the show. Yeah. So, so there's, uh, there's this tradition. Anyway, that's, uh, that's last week's Parsha. And that transitions into this week's Parsha, which is the, uh, the garments of the Kohanim and uh, the role that they serve. So again, just an overview. It begins with the oil. We'll talk about it in a moment. The Kohanim and their garments. We go through them in detail. Shh, 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 shh. Which we go through the aphode and, uh, and uh, the breastplate and we go through uh, the choshen, all the details of the, the high priest and the eight garments that he wore and the regular priest and the four garments that they wore and then we get into it towards the end of the parsha, the inauguration. That now that uh, Aaron and his sons will be set aside, will be distinguished for uh, service. So they had to be elevated in that status. There was an installation ceremony of Aaron and his sons. And uh, it was uh, done through sacrifices. It was done through anointing them with oil and so on. The Tamid offering is uh, page 481. That's also, you can spend an hour talking about the Korban Tamid. Korban Tamid is an incredible... I'll just spend, instead of an hour, I'll spend 30 seconds because it's very exciting. If you, page 480, 481. Which passage? It's Perich Chavtes, Pasuk Ches. Chapter 29, verse 38. It's the obligation of offering on the altar daily two sheep within their first year every day continually. The Korban Tamid. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, and afterwards the Beis HaMikdash had a daily sacrifice. The daily sacrifice was offered. We're not looking at the text, so you don't, don't feel you need to find it. We're not, we're not examining this text. But every morning... Every morning and every evening, there was a daily sacrifice of a sheep, in uh, mixed with uh, not mixed but also a fine flour offering, and so on. The korban tamid, korban tamid was offered seven days a week, even though it required um, actions, activities that were in violation of Shabbos. 
it superseded the laws of Shabbos. The carbon Tamid was offered seven days a week, 365 days a year, Yom Kippur, Every day, the Korban Tamid, the daily sacrifice was offered. What do we do that's modeled after the daily sacrifice? Shacharis and Mincha. Those are our two daily sacrifices. That's our compass. That's our anchor in our day. So the Korban Tamid. In fact, Shavasar Batamas, the 17th of Tamas, which is a day of Jewish mourning, three we- begins, launches the three weeks, culminating in Tishabav. There are five things that we mourn for on Shavasar Batamas. One of the things that we mourn for is... The loss of the daily sacrifice. Because you can only imagine. Imagine if you had a routine. You know, the daily sacrifice was like Lahavda, the Cal Ripken Jr. You had a routine that you never missed. The Jewish people in the base I make, Cal Ripken, he was a baseball player, the Baltimore Orioles. He set the record for most consecutive games in a row. So, excuse me while I fill in our British, uh, fill in our British friend. So, imagine you had a, you had a routine, a consistency. You went to the Dafyomi every day, 365 days a year, everything. And you were forced to miss it. You were prevented from attending or from offering or from... You missed a minion after all those days of missing a minion. You made your own chalas. You visited the sick at the hospital every week. You did something virtuous on a regular, consistent basis and you were forced to stop. The routine was broken. There's a feeling of devastation. That's what we mourn on the 17th. What's so great about this routine? What's so great about the carbon Tamid? So I'll tell you, there's an incredible medrash. Medrash says the rabbis got together and they, um, and they had a conference to debate what's the most important pasuk in the Torah. The medrash describes one of the great Tanam, one of the great rabbis said, you know what the most important pasuk in the Torah is? Love your neighbor as yourself. That, the rest is commentary. That's everything. The whole purpose of the Torah is to cultivate and fashion and mold us into sensitive, kind, empathetic people. You have to love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about being godly in the way we behave and the way we behave towards others. <coughs> they said, okay, good. The great Rabbi Akiva, after, it's not a coincidence, that it's the great Rabbi Akiva who's the author of the statement, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the most important principle in the Torah. When did Rabbi Akiva likely author that statement? After he buried 24,000 students who were Talmudic scholars, who were observant, who were righteous by any measure, superficially, but who didn't treat each other nicely, who didn't love each other as themselves, who didn't show mutual respect, admiration, acceptance. They were judgmental of one another, they were dismissive of one another, and Rabbi Akiva lived to bury, can you imagine, 24,000 students. And what's Rabbi Akiva's conclusion, what's his takeaway? So that's one opinion. The second great Tana said, no, it's not the Yeah, that's important. That deals with the realm of between man and man. That's not the most important verse. You know what the most important verse is? Shema Yisrael, Shem Hashem Echad. Hear, O Israel. That's the statement of the unity of God. That's a statement of, uh, of the singularity of God, that everything comes from God, that God is the source of everything. That's ethical monotheism. That's our... Motto, that's everything we believe in. It all emanates from there. Why do we respect other people? Because we're all creations of God. But you have to first believe in God. Beautiful, it's true. Shema Yisrael is very important. Third Tana offers a third suggestion. This Pasuk in our Parsha. You know what the most important verse in the Torah is? One sheep in the morning, a second sheep you offer in the afternoon. So they assembled, they probably had this conference at the Homoak undoubtedly. They had lots of Chinese food. And they, uh, the rabbis, that's always what they do. 
and they decided at the end, they heard the three positions, they debated, they discussed, it was time to put it to a vote. Which verse was deemed the most significant Pasuk in the entire Torah according to the Medrash? Allegedly according to the Medrash, by the way, because this Medrash is quoted in secondary sources and no one's ever found the Medrash primarily. But in any case, the uh, Medrash concludes they put it to a vote. Which was the most significant verse? Shockingly, one sheep you offer in the morning, one sheep. One sheep, could you imagine? Our outreach revolution. Our outreach revolution, you know, we have the opportunity to inspire. Imagine, you know, you go up to those... uh, you know, as I, as I tell you every week, people bagel you every two minutes here living in Boca. Just this week I was somewhere shopping and someone comes over and says, Vus machstu! Last week I was in Costco with Yochevet. Some guy comes over, he looks in my card, he says, Checking, is everything in there kosher? You know, everybody, everywhere you go, they're bageling you. Nobody's wearing a yarmulke, but they want you to know I'm Jewish. It was a chutzpah. He was trying, I want you to know I'm Jewish too. They're desperate. They're calling out. So imagine you say, you know what? I want to share the Torah with you. Let me tell you the most important verse in the Torah. A sheep in the morning and a second sheep in the afternoon. The person's going to say instantly, ah, I want a piece of that religion. No, tell them about Shema. Yeah, two barbecues, maybe. Right, right, maybe. So, maybe. Tell them some ribs in the morning, ribs in the evening, maybe. Anyway, so tell them about Shema. They'll say, oh, I want a piece of that. Tell me about the Recha Kamocha. They'll say, oh, where can I come to that class? This is the most important verse in the Torah. So what's the meaning? The idea is the notion of consistency. It's about consistency. And why is consistency so significant for the Jew? Because for a Jew, ultimately, it's about being in a relationship with Hashem. And relationships are about consistency. Can I tell my wife I'm taking a day off from marriage? Can I tell my kids I'm taking a day off from being your dad? Listen, Wednesdays, I'm not... Wednesday's my day off. Go to your mother. Wednesday's my day off. Find someone else to help you with homework, pay for your tuition, feed you, clothe you, bathe you, put you to sleep, help you, guide you. Wednesday's my day off from being your dad. Can you go on vacation from your spouse? Can you go on vacation from your kids? Relationships don't allow for breaks. Relationships are about consistency. They are the backbone, they are the foundation of relationships. And we are in a relationship with God. And therefore the most important thing we can do is consistency. Consistency really is all about integrity. If you're inconsistent, this is what we talked about last week also with the Aron, Tochu Kaboro, the inside match the outside. If we're inconsistent, then we're not whole, we're not complete, we lack integrity. And so this verse is the most deemed, devoted, the most significant pasuk, not because it's the most inspirational, but because it speaks to the core. If, if, you don't, if you're not committed to consistency, then you can have Shema all you want, but you're not going to be consistent in your obedience to this deity, to Shema. If you don't believe in consistency, then you could say, until it's better to love yourself more than your neighbor. You have to first be committed to the principle of consistency, of routine, of believing in something in a relationship so strongly you recognize what is consistency after all. When you're consistent, you see, when you're inconsistent with something, what you're ultimately revealing is that it is external to you. I am me, and I happen to have the routine that's in, that ex- external to me, and I can break it because it's not really about who I am. But when you're consistent with something, it defines you. It is about your very character. It reveals your very essence, your very core. It's who you are. Which is why in relationships, if there is fidelity, it speaks to integrity of who you are and your commitment to that relationship. So the significance of this passage is the notion of a consistency in a relationship with Hashem. It's Tamid. 
You don't say to God, look, I'm on vacation, I didn't bring my tefillin. I daven when I'm at home. I'm on vacation this week, I don't have to daven. I'm on vacation this week, I don't have to keep kosher. I'm on vacation this week, I don't have to practice honesty and be ethical. I'm on vacation this week, I don't have to, you know, pay. I can cheat at Disney, I can... There's no such thing as a vacation from God. Any more than there's a vacation from one's family, one's spouse, one's children. And that's what this Pasuk is about. Okay, anyway, all this was when you started the class. So let's get started. And the Pasha then ends with the Mizbeach uh, HaKetores, the incense altar, the second altar that was in the Mishkan, in the Beis HaMikdash, not used for sacrifices, but where the, uh, the incense itself was offered. Incense is also very significant. It speaks to our outreach revolution, the BRS outreach revolution. Because what was the incense? The incense had spices that were included, two spices that were of a terrible odor. And why were they included? To speak to the totality, that all of the fragrances, the entire spectrum of fragrances were included. Ultimately, it will blend in to the majority, which is the positive fragrance, but that you have to have everything represented. And that's, a, that's the... Um, that's the origin, that's the precedent for our whole attitude. That is a symbolism of the Jewish people. That if we are going to ultimately be a pleasant fragrance to the world, then we have to make room for even the poor smelling odors that are part, they'll blend in. They will be nullified by our pleasant fragrances, but we have to care, we have to reach out, and we have to be involved. Okay, all oh, that's introduction. Why was the golden separated from the rest of the Kalim? Why? Oh, good question. Right, excellent question. Excellent question. The question. question is, all of the utensils were discussed and given a design in Truma. And now we interrupt by talking, we'll talk about the oil in a moment, the menorah. We talk about the clothing of the uh, high priest and the priest. And then we end with one more utensil. Why wasn't that utensil included in Parshish Truma where it belonged? Why is there the break in the Mizbeach HaKitoros is only at the end of Parshish Tetzavah? It's a great question. The Mephoshim will deal with it there. We likely will not get up to it this time. Okay, beginning of Parshish Tetzavah. So the Ibn Ezra gives us a little introduction to the order of Parshish Tetzavah. What's happening here? Rav Avram Ibn Ezra. So you look at the Ibn Ezra. And again, just a reminder, the purpose of our class is a text-based analysis. So that makes these Parshios very difficult. Because it's not so exciting to look at the dimensions of the garments of the priests. So we'll do the best that we can, but we're not here to give homiletical, beautiful, inspirational, although we may change the Parsha class into that someday. For now, we're trying to stay sensitive to the grammar, to the text, and uh, to the commentator's analysis of it. So Ibn Ezra gives a little introduction. Ibn Ezra says, I want to give you an introduction to the flow of the Parsha. I want to give you an overview of what's really happening. Which, by the way, tells you, and again, this is very important, that the Rishonim, certainly the Ibn Ezra, and we are encouraged to examine, to take a bird's eye view. Not just to be stuck in any particular verse, or any particular chapter, any particular aliyah, but to take a bird's eye view and to say, what's going on here? The Torah is not written randomly. It's not just a collection of different narratives, but there's a theme that's running through it. And there's a transition from different sections, from one theme to the other. So what's the transition? What's going on here? So when the uh, parsha, the preceding parsha, Truma concluded to tell us all about the utensils, the curtain, tabernacle, the tent, the covering, once we concluded giving you the um, parameters of the building, now we're going to talk about the people who operate in the building who serve in the building. And what is their, what is their role? 
So how do we begin to talk about their role? It's the beginning of our parsha. And you, who's you? Moshe. God says to Moshe, I want you to command the Jewish people to take pure pressed olive oil for the purpose of kindling the menorah, the light. It will last tamid continually. It's la ma'or. Its purpose is to provide light. Its purpose is to illuminate. So we start with the role of the Kohanim, says the Ibn Ezra, which is to light the menorah and to light it with a pure oil, not with a foreign oil, not with a contaminated oil, not with an inferior oil. These individuals who will serve in that building that we spoke about, they are to be distinguished in their lineage and distinguished in their appearance. And that's why we have right in order. We have first, we had last week's parsha was the utensils, which goes into now the oil. Their purpose is their service in the temple, says the Ibn Ezra. Why is the oil snuck in here? Because what's the whole role of the Kohanim to illuminate, to provide light? And these individuals who will provide that light and who will illuminate, they are to be distinguished in their lineage and to be distinguished in their dress. And then we'll get into in the parsha that there is a orientation. You don't just become a Kohen overnight. You don't just begin service tomorrow. You have to go through an orientation that lasted seven days that Moshe taught them. And then the parsha concludes, we just spoke about in a moment, after they go through orientation seven days, they begin their service, they're ready to go. What's the first thing they do? The most consistent thing they'll ever do, which is the daily offering. So the daily sacrifice is offered on the major altar, and the ketoras, the um, incense, is offered on the smaller, the golden altar. Which he tries to address a little bit, your question, the Ibn Ezra. He's sneaking it in the flow, because he's saying that we talked about the kalim, now we talk about what's supposed to happen in the Mishkan, it should illuminate the oil. Then we talk about who does it, which are the Kohanim, and they are distinguished in their heritage, in their lineage, and in their dress, and their appearance. And then we get into, well, what is it that they do? Well, they go through an orientation for seven days with Moshe. And then from there we get into, now they're ready to start working. So they offer the daily sacrifice. And then we end by contrasting it to the daily sacrifices on the Mizbeach, but the incense is offered on the golden, golden Mizbeach. Okay, so that's the Ibn Ezra's overview to try to create some running theme throughout everything going on here. Now the Balaturim points out something significant that we all know, and it's particularly relevant beginning tonight. Whose yard site is tonight? Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. Zion Adar. We all know that Moshe's name does not appear in Parshas Tetzaveh. We have a pronoun. You command. What do you mean you? It's a little rude. Moshe. We're always referring to Hashem and Moshe. It's not a coincidence, says the Balaturim of Yaakov ben Asher, that Moshe's name is omitted. God is not being rude when he says using a pronoun. God is by design leaving Moshe out. And this is the only place. From when Moshe appears on the scene, from when Moshe is born, he appears in every single parsha in the Torah with the exception of one, and that's Parsha's Tetzavah. Why? 
Why is Moshe left out? And you know why he's left out? Says the Balaturim. Because he wanted to be. You see, when, when God seemed unforgiving of the Jewish people, Moshe turned to him and he said, not unforgiving, when Moshe had had it with the Jewish people, he says, I've had it. I'm done. Cross me out. Erase me from your book. I don't want to be associated with this people. You got to know when to pull back. When to cut your losses. Moshe says, I don't want my legacy to be with these miserable, complaining, negative, fabrenta people. Forget it. Cut me out. So, God said, Gemara Mako says that if a Chacham... Essentially, Gemara says, be careful what you wish for. Because when a righteous person offers a curse, when a righteous person offers a wish, he may get it. So even though they worked it all out, even though they worked it all out, but when a righteous person ordains something, it comes true. So Moshe got what he was wishing for. And therefore he's omitted, yes, and therefore he's omitted from the... Parsha. I thought he said that when Hashem said he wants to wipe everyone out because of the Cheta Ego. Yeah, no, no, it's, 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 yeah, correct. Correct, correct. So he offers a second reason why Moshe's name is omitted from this Parsha. Because what is the theme of the Parsha? The distinction of the priests, and particularly the role of the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. And the role, the primary role that he plays, the prominent role that he plays. Now, who should have, who should have been the high priest? Moshe. Why is Moshe not the high priest? Why is Moshe not get that, the, the biggest part in the play? Is Aaron's his older brother? Nope. Sorry. Nope. Why not? Because when God first went to recruit Moshe, Moshe was really difficult. And maybe it was humility, but you don't argue with God. When God says, I created you, I fashioned you, I molded you to be the leader, you don't say, mm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with these sheep in the mountain, there's no one here, there's no one who bothers me, it's quiet. No, thank you. Because he hesitated, because he resisted Shesirev, God says, okay, you're resisting? No problem. You don't get the biggest part in the play. Aaron, your brother, gets the biggest part in the play. So it's interesting because I would have said, so why is Moshe's name omitted? Because it's God's way of saying, Moshe, again, you got the second example of, you got what you wished for. You hesitated, you resisted, you don't want to be number one? Okay, you're not number one. I'm not even going to mention your name in Parshas Tetzaveh. But it's not what the, the Balaturim says. What does the Balaturim say? Because Moshe was in such pain from this. Now what was his pain? What was his pain? That he was bitter, that he didn't get the biggest role in the play? What was his pain? Ag Nafsha. He wasn't forthcoming to do whatever. I think it was that he was, he was in pain realizing how much he had kiviyachal hurt Hashem. How much he, in retrospect, regretted. How could I have resisted God? In other words, if God had let it go, so Moshe would say, okay, it wasn't a big deal to God. I resisted, we went through our thing, and then he got me. But now that God is saying, you're not the man, Moshe realizes, wow, God was thinking about it all this time. I really blew it. I really hurt God. Now again, I just want to make it very clear. God doesn't feel hurt. 
God doesn't bear grudges. God doesn't feel pain. God is omnipotent, infinite. God is perfect. God is... Uh, I don't mean to anthropomorphize God to describe Him as a human being. It's not that Moshe is in this relationship, but I hurt God. But from Moshe's perspective, Agamas Nafsha, his re- he, having resisted God, he realizes in retrospect, may be a mistake. So that's the second reason he offers. The cost of Tzavah b'menor v'achem b'tam etzav is b'nei Yisrael v'yishishneim noagim b'chol yom v'yish b'hem kis chesron kis. So the Balaturim also throws it. Why are we beginning now? We're talking about the Kohanim. This is a parsha which is dedicated in honor of the priests. Why are we talking about the menorah and the, ta- and the Karban Tamid? So the answer is both of them are consistent, continuous offerings. The menorah uses the term Tamid, although it's not the same type of Tamid, we'll talk about. It's daily. And the Karban Tamid is, ta- is daily. And both require Chesr and Kis. Both require a financial loss. In other words, whoever is going, you have to contribute, you have to give, you have to sustain it. It says, God has to command. Whenever you see, the Baal term is giving us an insight here. Whenever you see the Torah use the term tzav, to command, what it's revealing is, you wouldn't want to do it. You need an extra push. When God just says something, it means that you're going to hear that and you're going to say, oh, that's great, I'm interested, count me in. Whenever it says Lashon Sav, you're commanded, it means that the natural inclination, reaction would have been, I'm not so interested, so you need an extra little push to be able to get going. So the Baal gives these two reasons why Moshe is omitted from the Parsha. I encourage you to read um, Lord Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth. Did I say that properly? Absolutely. So he, uh, first of all, his, his, his weekly articles, Covenant and Conversation, I think it's called, are absolutely brilliant. I've really not encouraged you to read it for a long time because I'm always tempted to use it in the drusha, but I don't end up using it. Too many people have it printed out, they're sitting there reading it. I mean, not that I should be embarrassed to use it. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Anyway, this week, I think it was this week's, he has a brilliant interpretation of why Moshe is left out of Parsha's Tetzaveh. And unlike... The Balaturim, and unlike our tradition that we see it in a negative light, that he's being punished, he's omitted, he's not here, he spins it, and based on sources, that it's a type of leadership. It's actually a very brilliant insight. That there is a form, a critical form of leadership, which is to retreat and make room for others. Moshe does not want to overshadow his brother. His name is left out of this parsha so that Aaron has an opportunity to shine. Because there are different rules, there are different roles. There's Kesar Malucha and there's Kesar Kahuna. Moshe is the Kesar Malucha, he is the crown of royalty. Moshe is the king. Aaron is a parallel rule. He actually develops the idea there, Rabbi Sachs, of um, a balance of power, he talks about. He develops the notion of. of, of Leadership requires checks and balances. Leadership requires balance of power. And so the Jewish people too in our leadership. By the way, in the time of the Mishnah also. You had the Nasi and the Beisav. You had always the Zugos. You had the pairs. We always have a balance of power. You have the Shul Rabbi and you have the Shul President. You have a balance of power. The Board of Directors. I should say you have the Rabbi and you have the Rebetzin. The balance of powers. So it's actually grossly unbalanced. Let me just... There is no balance in those powers. Let me just be clear about that. But any case, what? Oh, I absolutely recognize it. Hold on, hold on. So you have the Kesser Kahuna and the Kesser Malucha in Judaism. You have the king and you have the priest. And there's a balance between the two. So first of all, that's expressed. But the notion of leadership, and I'll just share, this is an insight I heard once from Rabbi J.J. Shafter, a brilliant insight. You know, we have a, a mystical idea 
It's so terrible. We're supposed to get to the text here. We haven't really gotten into anything. Good, good. You have a mystical idea. Um, I'm not old enough yet to learn Kabbalah, but uh, so I can't tell you in depth, but I can just share with you superficially. The I'm not kidding, but you uh, you um, there's an idea called tzimtzum. What's tzimtzum? Contraction. contraction. What is contraction? You see, God. This is a, this is a, is a famous paradox. It's a famous paradox. Let me ask you a mathematical question. What is one plus one? What's a hundred plus one? A, a million plus one? A trillion plus one? All of those equations, you add them and you get a sum. You get an addition by adding the two together. Now let me ask you a mathematical question. What's infinity plus one? It's infinity. What's infinity plus a trillion? Infinity. Infinity. When you're dealing with infinity, nothing else can have existence, significance, meaning. It's all blended in, it's all overshadowed, it's all rendered impotent and negligible to infinity. Infinity makes no room for anything else, mathematically. Well, the same is true mystically, the same is true Kabbalistically, the same is true metaphysically. And that is, when you have God, who is an infinite being, how could a human being exist? What's infinity plus one? Infinity. So the Kabbalists understand, there's a great tradition, that when God created the world, it required Him to do something first. And that was tzimtzum. He had to withdraw, He had to constrict Himself in order to make room for others, in order to make room for a world, in order to make room for us. And Rabbi J.J. Shachter, it was at, actually he was the... Um, he was the scholar-in-residence at the GA a few years ago, the General Assembly of the Federation Movement. So I happened to be at that GA. It's the only one I was ever at. It was in uh, Nashville. And uh, late night, he had a meeting with all like the top givers. So I certainly did not qualify, but I snuck in because Rabbi J.J. Shaft is one of my rabbis. I had to hear him. So he developed the idea there based on God as a model of leadership that just as God practices tzimtzum, constricts himself to make room for others, effective leadership requires the ability to, restri- to constrict, to make room for others, to inspire the others, to lead the others, to make room for others to shine as well. Rabbi Sachs doesn't get into any of this. Rabbi Sachs doesn't talk about any of this in his article, but, he, but, but it's the same concept. He talks about the idea of Moshe's name does not appear in Tetzava, not as a punishment, it's not negative of Moshe. It is a beautiful description in Judaism of balance of power and each, is, each one's opportunity to shine. That Moshe is okay with not being in Tetzava. Moshe doesn't need to be in the limelight. Moshe doesn't need to be in the press releases. Moshe doesn't need to be making every speech and in every interview and be on TV constantly. He's more than happy to take a back seat and allow his brother Aaron to shine. So I really encourage you, if you if just Google Chief Rabbi, I think it's chiefrabbi.com is his website, Which but you could subscribe to Jonathan Sachs' uh, weekly email. And uh, they're brilliant every Torah, but this week's is particularly brilliant. I found, again, the model of leadership, the balance of power. It's Aaron. He also talks more. He, he really gets into it and he writes so beautifully. He's, you, know, you can imagine how difficult it was. Aaron is the older brother and he's watching his younger brother Moshe be the number one. He's the king. He's the one who was recruited by God. He's placed, he's put number one. That's difficult for an older brother to see and yet he accepts it with great humility. And now turn the other way. Moshe's number one. He's God's chosen. 
Now he's got to see his brother Aaron be the high priest, be the one who gets to conduct the service. Because after all, for Moshe, it was never about power. It's about an opportunity to get close to God. And here, the great Mishkan, the great tabernacle with its great avoda, who's the one who's going to do it? It's Aaron. After everything Moshe had to endure, Moshe had to endure the worst of the people. He had to hear the complaints and the negativity. He had to resolve their conflict. He had to get them out of the hole every time they caused a, a problem for themselves. He had to go climb up to God and beg forgiveness. He's dealing with the worst of what it has to offer. Now it's an opportunity to go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim and have a private rendezvous with God. And who gets to do it? Aaron. And yet, Moshe is okay with Aaron's role. And Aaron is okay with Moshe's role. And that's the beauty of leadership, the beauty of the balance of power. So read the essay, he can express it much better than I have. Yes? Just a quick question. Uh, Moshe's uh, kids are not really, uh, have not been mentioned, besides the case with Sipora and Abrit and all this. Right. We're not, uh, so is there any. Yeah, there's no question. Moshe, this is very sad, sad yeah. for me particularly, to think about. But yeah, Moshe does not succeed in transmitting to his children. They don't emerge the leaders that he is and the likelihood, many commentators discuss this, because he was Moshe. He wasn't home. He was busy leading the people. I wouldn't say he'd have, I would be very careful before I said he had a bad marriage. I did say bad. I I would be careful before I said he didn't have a good marriage. He had an unusual marriage. (laughs) He had an unusual marriage. There's no question, listen, we could do a three hour study on Moshe as a family man. Moshe vis-a-vis Tzipporah whom he had to pull back from. They didn't experience intimacy. They weren't together. They didn't, he had much more intimacy and privacy with Hashem than he did with, with Zipporah. Uh, Moshe, who was inaccessible to his own children, and therefore they never emerge on the stage of Jewish life. We don't find out much about them. It's, Moshe, in many ways, can be developed as a tragic figure. Again, tonight's is your type. Think about Moshe. Moshe, in many ways, is a tragic figure. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, many. Eli Akoin, Aaron Akoin. We have many, many examples of that. Again, I don't, as a rabbi, a community leader, I don't like to think about that. But you're right. You have many, many examples of that. Moshe, you remember we studied this when we studied the end of the whole Torah. That, you know, you can, you get emotional when you read it. Moshe ends his life. He climbs on top of a mountain and he's all by himself. At the end of it all. When it ends, after having led millions of people, after having sacrificed, compromised, after having given up his family, after having everything, he is by... Now, again, we said then, I don't want to review it now, you could view it two ways. Either he's all by himself and how tragic, or he's with God and he needs no one else. He couldn't be happier. He's with ultimately his, his greatest companion ever. And that is the Almighty. So, but Moshe is in his yard set. Tonight is the Zion Adar dinner. I'm sorry, Helen, we'll get to you in one second. Tonight is the Zion Adar dinner, which is the tradition in many communities, the Hever Kadisha. Um, we celebrate their incredible chesed. We celebrate the role of the Hever Kadisha on Zion Adar. It's a beautiful dinner taking place tonight. It's always in a leap year question of do you do it in the first Adar, the second Adar, and so on. Um, so, uh, why is I another? Why do we choose Moshe Rabbeinu's Yorzeit as the time to honor the Chavra Kadisha? What's the connection between the two? Because they, did, they didn't have to oh. be concerned. So many, many reasons, many, many reasons are given. But the primary reason that's given is the Chavra Kadisha got the night off. Who did the tahara and the burial on Moshe? Hashem. Hashem. So Moshe Rabbeinu's birthday slash Yorzeit, Chavra Kadisha got the day off. So that's the day that we honor Chavra Kadisha for the work that they do. Yes, Helen. Where the preparation is, is set for the 
modified role of leadership that, that you're a leader but you have to, you can't do everything. Yeah, excellent. So, you, right, excellent. Well said. So Yisro is a great, this is a, a beautiful transition from Yisro. And maybe it's actually Moshe having learned that lesson. He heard his father-in-law. You can't do everything, delegate, share responsibility, and be able to take a back seat. And Pashas Tetzaveh, he takes the ultimate back seat. His name doesn't even appear. But remember, it's Hashem who commanded him. I agree, granted, it's Hashem who assigns the roles, but how often in life, Elena, are we assigned roles, but we resist them anyway, because we want a bigger role? So Moshe, it's Hashem who is, or a smaller role. Most likely people usually want a bigger role. I shouldn't say a bigger role, they want their name in more lights. Not necessarily a bigger role of actually doing anything, but they'd like their name in more lights. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's keep going. Just, uh, there was so much more to see here. The Svorno. Ravavadya Svorno. So now let's get into the text a little bit. Until now, I said what we weren't going to do, which was giving outside ideas. Let's get into the text. The Svorno notices something. Until now it's been saying You should do through someone else It's been understood that Assign, delegate the responsibility To build these utensils To fashion these utensils through someone else Now it says Why? With these three mitzvahs That Moshe is to do it himself that he, Moshe is to command the people about bringing pure olive oil. Moshe is to do the installation of Aaron and his sons, nephews. And that he should speak to the Chachmei Lev directly. He should speak to these artisans and craftsmen directly to, uh, to build the, to fashion the clothing of the Kohanim. But the Svarno is picking up on something you, you see all the commentaries pick up on. The Orachayim, the Kliyakar, everybody's going to. I just don't want to take the time to read everybody right now. We're going to run out of time. Uh, let's look at the Kliyakar. Just again, because it's a, it's a text-based class. The Kliyakar is going to ask a series of 10 or 12 questions here. Kliyakar is going crazy on this Pasuk. Asking questions none of us thought to ask. It's two... Um, this first person, second, third, third person, you're, you're mixing it up. Viata tzave, it should say. You command. Viata means and you. Tzave means and you should command. Nobody was bothered by that. See, again, we're studying the text. The Kliyaka, the commentators read the text, and they weren't listening with half an ear in shul. They were studying and analyzing. Clerk is bothered. Viata and you. What does titzaveh mean? Translate the word titzaveh. You will, you will command. You should command. What do you mean you should? And you, you should command? You don't see a problem with that? It should be viata tzaveh. And you command. Or titzaveh. What do you have to say? Viata titzaveh includes viata. Because it doesn't have a, a, a noun. Uh, no well, you don't need it. So what do you mean? To say atah titzaveh is redundant. 
could just say tzavei, you could just say titzavei. Gam milas viata kulum yuseres ki ayol lo martzavas bnei Yisrael ki b'loshon zenemar b'parshas emor continues the kliyakar. The whole word viata is extraneous. What do you have to mention it? You could just say tzavas bnei Yisrael command the Jewish people and points to kliyakar. We do do in parshas emor. It says tzavas bnei Yisrael ala neiros halala when it comes to lighting the candles. So mashakasav Ramban lo mashik b'chloyasa zayi de shliach. So the Ramban tries to answer, we just saw the Sforno also gave the same answer, the Rechaim gives the answer, that it's a message to Moshe, Ve'ata, and you, nobody else. Don't assign this. Don't sit in the Oval Office and tell someone else, hey, don't forget, go send a memo to the Jewish people, they've got to bring in pure oil. No, you need to send that email, Moshe. That's coming from you. That's what the Ramban answered. But the Kliyaka doesn't like it. He says, yeah, okay, that's a nice pshat. It's a nice vort. But why specifically with the oil is it assigned to Moshe directly and is he not allowed to um, delegate? Why now? Why do we introduce the parsha dealing with the vestments, the garments of the priests with the Instruction to the people to bring pure oil. When should it have been given? After the menorah. You already gave us the details of how the menorah is going to be constructed. So in that context, also mention, tell the people to bring pure oil. So the Abar Benel explains, The Abar Benel was also bothered. Again, I'm trying to show you, Don Yitzchak Abar Benel, everyone's bothered. We have to be bothered. You have to learn to be bothered when something is... A question. So, what did the Abar Benel answer? No, Viata meant, in the future, know that you, you're going to command them. That's how you read it. Not Viata Titzavet, and you, you command, because then it sounds ridiculous. The Abar Benel says, Viata, comma, hey you, you should know, Titzavet, that you are the one who's going to command them later. The Abar Benel says, right now, they weren't even commanding them. It's about later. That's how to punctuate it so it makes sense. So again, the Kliyakar says, I don't buy it. Because even according to the Barbanel, what's the point of telling him now, hey you, later you're going to be the one to command them. You tell him later. What's the point of telling him now? Preparation. Furthermore, says the Kliyakar of Lunchitz, Why are you bringing the oil? What's the goal, the purpose of the pure oil? To... Illuminate with pure oil consistently. Neros mi boile. What should it have said? Nobody was bothered by this also. Guys are asleep at the wheel. <laughs> what should it have said? The purpose of the oil is lahalos. Neros. How many arms are there in the candelabra, the menorah, and the base of the Six. Seven. 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 seven arms. Not like our Hanukkiah at home. So there's seven arms. How many candles are you lighting? So why does it say bring olive oil in order to light the candle? It should say the candles. Again, the Kliyakar was sensitive to the text. I can't find the Kliyakar. Where did he go? Oh. Okay, let's keep going. Vyod Kasha. And if you don't have enough questions yet, the Kliyakar says... When was the menorah lit? Through the night. 
from the evening until the morning. It wasn't lit during the day. So why does it say tamid, meaning always? The lechem upon him, for example, was on the shulchan tamid. The twelve loaves of bread were consistently on the table. There, tamid means always. Always means, you should know, how did they remove them? The Mishnah describes that there were four, two pairs of koanim, and two, they would, one would be removing it off while the other one slid it on to fulfill tamid. You didn't take it off and then put another one on. You slid it off while you slid the next one on because it was tamid, it was always 24-7, 365. So the Kliyakar says, how could you describe the menorah, the oil, as being tamid? It wasn't tamid. It wasn't tamid. It was only in the evening. It wasn't lit during the day. What? With the... With the uh, Hold off, we'll get to it. And when it tells us where it was lit, outside in the old mo, it was yeah, out. It wasn't chametz outside the parochas. Uh, why do I need the whole maramakum? Why do I need you to tell me where it was? Just tell me where you're lighting the candle. On the menorah. I know where the menorah is. You got to give me a whole song and dance of where the menorah is. We already had that in last week's parsha. We already know. Even the way that we describe where it's lit is different than an emor, which describes how the menorah was lit. So you have about 10 questions here. If, before we even look at the answer, regardless of the answer, if you take nothing else out, it's to ask the questions. To ask questions. Judaism encourages us to ask questions, to delve deeper, to seek answers. They were sensitive to the text, and if we're going to grow and learn, we have to be also. So listen to what the Kliyakar, he gives a radical interpretation. He says he got it all wrong. It's not the menorah we're talking about. We're not talking about the menorah at all. Nearly Yashiv calls them a Mashakas of Ramban, Kimasha Amar Lahawal's near Tamid, Hainu near Maravi, Shayadolik Laolam, Aval Shar Neros, Lahayotamid, Kim Meerevad Boker. It's not the menorah, it's not all of the candles. It's not the lighting of the menorah and the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. It's the mitzvah of a near Tamid. We have a near Tamid in Shul. What's that modeled after? The near Maravi. The Western candle that was lit 24-7. And Banachazu Yuturtsu Kolasvekos and Iskarim. And if you understand that, we're not going to take the time now to go through it, but you see the Kliakar has five more paragraphs. The Kliakar says if you understand that, that the text was never describing that this oil is for lighting the menorah, but rather that this oil is for the Ner Tamid, the light that's always consistently lit, then you can answer all the questions that we asked. So again, it's not the answer is not as earth-shattering, it's the questions. It's notice how he read the text and he came up with all these questions. And by the way, again, if you're going to hold that it is the menorah, let's say you'll disagree with him. They're not the ner ma'aravi, that it's not referring to the ner tamid. You've got to answer his questions. Why ner, not neros? Why viatat titzave, not tzavei? Tzav is Yisrael. Why the change of the place, listing the place, we already know where it is. Why? All of his questions you're going to have to answer if you disagree with him. His conclusion gives a solution to the questions. If you disagree, you're going to have to come up with another answer. Yes. Rabbi, yeah. Uh, but the 
Right. But her crave is makes sense. No, you can say her crave. It's it's still a singular masculine. But her crave is titzave is the future. That's why it's a question. Hakrev means now, so it makes sense to say you, Hakrev. But the Atta, you, Titzavel, it's the tough, it's the. Yeah, so it's the same question. He asked that. The Kriyaka includes that question. He sees the Atta Titzavel is the same question. Yeah. In Parsha before? Yes. In every paragraph is Vasi. It says in English, it'll say, you shall make, but in the Hebrew, there's no Atta at all. Good Vasi's. I'll tell you another great word. It's one of my favorites. In Parsha's Titzavel, over and over and over again, you have Vyasisa, Vyasisa, Vyasisa. You should do, you should do, you should do. Then we're going to Truma Tetzava. Then we're going to get to Vayaka Pakudai and we're going to read all the exact same stuff again. There's only one difference. Vasu. They did it. So Rav Pam has a beautiful word. He says, You know why we repeat all of Vayaka Pakudai? Even though it's really the same thing as Truma Tetzava? Because they actually did what they were started out to do. It's so unusual to finish a project. It's so unusual to complete it exactly as you envisioned it. To see it all the way through. To be diligent all the way through. So many of us, how many of us have started projects all over our house? Things we began and we dropped the ball on. Rav Palm says, to go all the way through, that's, that's incredible. And that's why Parshish Truma Tetzave is, Viasisa you should do. And then Parshas Vayaka Pakude over and over again is Kenasu. It's not, I mean, it's not that, okay, uh, do this and then they'll do it right away. It's such a tremendous amount of instructions that it's not like do it right now. It's like. Yeah, well, here it's, it's referring to doing it right now. That's the purpose of it. All right, believe it or not, we're out of time. We just did the first pasuk. I had a lot more to talk about. Am I understanding correctly? Oh, no, no, what? Am I understanding correctly? The first little paragraph is about the and then way at the end, even in plural in the English, lamps. Aaron should end with lamps. That's the menorah. No, that translation says lamps, but it doesn't say lamps in the Hebrew. But is, is that what the Kriyakar is saying? That the first one refers just to the Nertamim? Correct. And the second. He doesn't get into the second one. He thinks the whole thing is referring to the Nertamim. All right, I'll see everybody next week. Don't forget, big Shabbos, Sunday morning also.